Serrano. I'm Ariana Ruiz. I'm Renee Rocha. And this is Imagining Latinidades. Thanks so much for joining me for this special live edition of Imagining Latinidades. My name is Daryl Wanzer Serrano. I'm one of your hosts. Um, so I have a confession to make before we really get going with this roundtable today. Uh, and the confession is I messed up during the conference uh, when I was supposed to hit record for the roundtable discussion. I neglected to do so. And so what we lost as a result of my uh, negligence in that moment is uh, the audience cheering, uh, people sounding excited about being uh, on the live podcast, uh, my framing of the initial question, and the first part of Arlene Davila's answer to my first question. And so for that, I deeply, deeply apologize. Um, the, the format for the roundtable, uh, I'll explain to you now, is something uh, somewhat unique. You know, we've had a few episodes of this podcast already uh, where we've basically talked to, uh, to ourselves as hosts, as co-hosts, and also to, uh, to a couple of invited um, guests, both of whom are fellows for a Mellon Foundation-funded Imagining Latinidades Sawyer Seminar. With this roundtable, we're going to carry some of the some some discussions that we've been having uh, on the podcast into a new audience and into a, a new group of folks who are going to answer some of those questions. What our plan was for this uh, for this roundtable is to really have a conversation about how each of the guests to this opening conference for Imagining Latinidades first came into contact with the field of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies. Uh, where they kind of you know see their voices fit within that field, within broader communities, uh, and how they see their research impacting people beyond those who might read the scholarly articles and monographs. And so, uh, my guests today are uh, are are three of the the first speakers at the conference. Uh, those include Arlene Davila from New York University, Gina Perez from Oberlin College, and. Valerie Martinez-Ebers from the University of North Texas. The question that I started everyone off with was uh, one that we've addressed here on the podcast before, both as co-hosts and also uh, with the guests that we've invited on already. And that question is, when and how did you get your start doing Latina, Latino, Latinx studies? What's your Latinx superhero origin story? Uh, Arlene was the first to tackle that question. And here's her answer. Many of us anthropologists who do Latino studies are not hired by anthropology departments. Anthropology departments still will hire the regional uh, trained scholar, which is one of the reasons why a lot of this anthropology has remained so white. Uh, but that's another conversation. But but the issue is that, yes, um, I, I came um, through Puerto Rican studies and la- later um, Latino studies. And thanks to the fact that I was able to find a placement in American studies, which was really a space furthering Latino studies and allow me uh, a refuge from the kind of inquiries that my discipline really was not encouraging. And uh, I think one of the great things that I'm proudest of is that I never listen to anyone who told me don't do Puerto Rican studies, that I, I knew I wanted to do uh, Puerto Rican studies no matter what. And I'm so glad that I did, even though it was, it was a battle. I think it, today it's still a battle for many scholars to do Puerto Rican studies. So I think there's some overlap in our <laughs> stories. Um, I also went to graduate school in the 1990s, started in 1993. And um, 
I knew nothing about graduate school when I entered graduate school. And I entered thinking, um, I actually entered in an, into a PhD program in anthropology at Northwestern University, never having taken an anthropology course um, and thinking I would be a Latin Americanist, you know, and, and I, thinking I would do work that would be at the intersections of politics and religion. And, um, and so someone said that anthropology would be the place to do that. And so that's how I wound up in an anthropology department. And I was really fortunate to have um, an advisor who was an Americanist anthropologist, Micaela Di Leonardo. Um, and there was really no one at Northwestern at the time who did Latino studies, but she, I think, was very um, supportive in getting me to think about Americanist anthropology as being a place to be able to do radical work, as a place to really be um, do feminist work and feminist ethnography and to do work in race and, and, and ethnicity. And, and, and so um, I think for me, the key point was not only having that support to think about Ameri- about my possibility of being someone who does work in the, in the United States, but it was uh, my second year of graduate school, I took advantage of this program called the um, Committee for Institutional Cooperation. I had a fellowship, um, a CIC fellowship, and that meant that I could study at any of the Big Ten schools. And so it just so happened that in the fall of 1994, Patricia Zavea, who um, is a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and one of the most important and kind of one of the first um, Chicana anthropologists and ethnographers was teaching at Michigan that fall. And she was teaching with the sociologist Tomas Amlaguer, who um, also is a, is, a, is a pioneer in the field of Latino studies and, and, and sociology. Um, and, um, and Eduardo Bonilla Silva was also at Michigan at the time. And so it just so happened that I took classes with all of these people and came in contact with a bunch of Latino graduate students. Um, at Northwestern, I was really the only one that, um, well, in my cohort, there were others who came after me in other departments and programs. But meeting all of these Latino graduate school students at the University of Michigan with these Latino professors who do Latino studies, it just it just changed my life forever. Um, it's when I met um, Adrian Burgos Jr., when I met Lourdes Gutierrez Najera, Wilson Valentin, they were all at Michigan. And it made me really excited. I wanted to be part of that community. Even though I knew I was going to return to Northwestern, I wanted to be a part of that intellectual community. And, um, and being in Chicago is another really important piece of the puzzle because I think I think being able to be connected to a Puerto Rican community in Chicago just through my own volunteer work and my own desire to be connected to a space beyond Northwestern meant that as a volunteer at the the, um, Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center, one of the two Puerto Rican cultural centers in Chicago, meant that through that work and then through this excitement to do Latino studies provided me with a space to actually come up with a project that was totally... um, something I hadn't anticipated, but that also, but that spoke to kind of what was going on in Chicago at the time, which was this kind of the ways that Puerto Rican communities were being affected by gentrification. And also this is the time of um, welfare reform. And so a lot of the people, a lot of the Puerto Rican families that I was working with were really had a lot of anxiety about how welfare reform in 1996 was going to impact their ability to access different kinds of social services. And then learning about the scholarship written by Puerto Rican women um, through um, through the through the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, um, um, Ana Huarbe um, and and um, Rina Benmayor, who were writing about Puerto Rican women and cultural citizenship, I found their scholarship, and it just 
meant that I wanted to do something that would contribute to a nuanced understanding of Puerto Rican women's um, experiences um, in a range of different constrained spaces. And so for me, that's what brought me to to Latino studies. Um, so it's kind of a circuitous, circuitous route, um, but it really formed kind of the questions I asked today and the work that I do today. Cool. Val. Well, I think, first of all, I'm 10 years before both of you. <laughs> so when I went to school... There were no Latino professors. I was the only Latino graduate student at Ohio State, and there were 63 graduate students. And so um, I think the first time I realized how unique I was, I wasn't even going to be a political scientist. I had applied to go to the public administration program, I didn't get accepted, and I have to say I was a little bit surprised. I graduated summa cum laude. I was working for the governor of Texas, and they didn't let me in their graduate program. I was just applying for a master's degree. But I went ahead and went there anyway because um, my former husband had been accepted in the political science department. So it was kind of a very, you know. I went to work for the Office of Minority Affairs at Ohio State, and working with Latino students, not my program. Ohio State is a, a land-grant institution. It's one of the largest, um, I think, in the United States. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to say that because I'm a Buckeye. But, um, I mean, there was hardly a presence of Latino students at Ohio State. Uh, in the graduate schools there, there were like 300 of us across all of these professional schools. And so I got involved as an activist there. We, we formed the Hispanic Graduate Student Professional Organization. And so my entry into it was through as an activist. I've never taken a single class in Latino studies. Anything I know is self-taught. When I started going to political science professional meetings, um, I felt so out of place. I gravitated to the Latino caucus just because I didn't know what I was doing. And I walked into the room. I was the only woman, the only Latina. Um, it was very lonely for a while. And I actually started studying Latino politics because they didn't have anybody else, and they wanted a woman to get the grant. Truth. Truth. So we did the Latino National Survey. The four men asked me to participate. I was studying education policy. Now, I did study um, minority children, the effect of school choice on uh, low-income minority children. I had I had always had an interest in Latinos. I was actively discouraged when I was in graduate school by my political science mentors. Same thing that you got. You'll never get a job, right? So I had studied senior citizens and education. And um, these men approached me. I hardly knew them. They asked me if I wanted to be on this project. We did the Latino National Survey. That was back in 2000. We started, we started collecting the money in 2002. And we had to go to so many foundations. It took us many years. We didn't even get into the field until the fall of 2005. But that was actually my very first foray into Latino topics, period. And we were in this big national survey. Um, I've just been very fortunate. It was serendipity. And I found my voice. That's great. And and kudos to not uh, to you for not saying the Ohio State University once. Well, <laughs> did you know that they, well, they, <laughs> they lost that they case. They lost the lawsuit, yeah. I also have to be careful now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the 
the next question I have is actually, you know, it's something that Arlene brought up, um, and I kind of wanted to, and I think each of you addressed it in, uh, in some way, but I wanted to get your, your takes on, on this. Um, so the question is, how does situating your scholarship in Latina, Latino, Latinx studies provide you with unique tools or methods to ask and answer questions that you may not be able to answer uh, quite as productively using more disciplinary approaches? Well, I, I think from my own perspective um, in anthropology, and I still today, um, anthropology likes to study the other and other places. And what Latinx studies does is always brings attention to and foregrounds matters of race and ethnicity at home. And that's what I think so it's so productive. Um, in particularly, all of my books, uh, I, for, my, for my discipline that I was trained, I, I really, uh, I think ethnography as a method is so important for what I do. Um, really looking at participant observation and all of the anthropological tools, but but it's really it's really that critical race analysis and interdisciplinarity of Latinx studies that I find most enriching to my own scholarship. Um, and I think, as a general rule, still today, I, when I look at um, the spaces that I find most vibrant. Um, are, are really Latino studies. I have to say that, you know, I, I haven't been going to anthropology discipline uh, conferences lately. Where, uh, uh, Claudia and I had a, com- had a, uh, a conversation about that. Where are the spaces where we find most excitement and most um, um, enriching conversations? And lately it's been within Latinx studies. And actually it has, um, I, ha- I must say that uh, you mentioned Pat Savela, and I have to say that I have been, as an anthropologist, I went to anthropology conferences for many, many years, and I always gravitated to the Association of Latino and Latin Anthropologists, and Gina is the president of the organization right now. That is a space that that scholars like Patricia Savela, Leo Chavez, um, so many founded, and that really nurtured a lot of us. I have to say that uh, Patricia Savela also mentored me, only by the fact of she being in those spaces and being the first Chicana to, to be in anthropology spaces. She, I remember distinctively when she and Leo Chavez would come to to a talk I gave, one of my first talks as a student, because it's so rare to see Latinx and Latina anthropologists that they actually sat through my talk. Like, how, how dare you, do, you know, that's amazing. Uh, I'll never forget that kind of membership, uh, that, that kind of um, advocacy and support and mentorship of that community. And um, so uh, kudos to the Association of Latino Anthropologists. It's a great space. And that's actually where I tell my students, I've been now training Latinx students in anthropology, we're finally um, uh, recruiting students. And the first thing I tell them is when you go to the anthropology meeting, search your community. Allah is there for you. And that's where you're going to enrich your conversation. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, going to professional meetings is one of these rites of passage when you're a graduate school. And it's incredibly intimidating um, to go into those spaces. And so to have something like Allah, the Association for Latina, Latina, Latinx Anthropologists was absolutely crucial for me as well. And um, and I, I have, I don't know, when I go to the anthropology meetings, I'm always thinking like where the, oh, I'm, I'm missing more Latino studies type panels or more conversations that are a little bit more broad than just ethnography. But um, I'm also not in an anthropology department. I'm in American studies. So when I go to American studies, I'm like, where's the ethnography? How come no one's talking to people? <laughs> and, then I'm, and, I'm, and then when I'm at Latino studies, I, I, still, I also want more ethnography. So I feel like all of these different spaces have given me 
you know, a range of different gifts that I'm incredibly grateful for. And, um, and then, and I think for me, Latino studies, I, like Arlene, I come to Latino studies through Puerto Rican studies and I had a three-year postdoc at the Center for Puerto Rican Studies. That's where I met you. That's where we met. Yes. That's right. And it was one of the best experiences I've ever had um, because I was just surrounded by people who worked in the area of education and politics and anthropology and literature and, and the arts. That's where I met Jasmine. Um, for the first time. Um, but I think that one of the things I realized by after leaving El Centro to go to my position at Oberlin College and to help establish Latino studies and American studies is that um, sometimes in Puerto Rican studies, you can be very insular. We can be very insular. And so I think that now with the, um, with the new Latino Studies Association, I really feel like my perspective and my analytical lens has really expanded so that I'm not just doing just Puerto Rican studies, but I really am trying to do a pan-Latino kind of thinking about difference within Latinidad as a category. And I think, you you know, Arlene, you've been one of the people who's really helped us to, to interrogate that and think about that. So I feel like, you know, there are these moments where I have started out in these spaces and been really nurtured, and then they've allowed me then to kind of, you know, expand and to broaden my scope of analysis. And so, I, and I think Latino studies in particular, uh, Latinx studies has allowed me to, to do that, to move from just Puerto Rican studies to broader analysis. If I still remember the question, <laughs> I think it was how Latino studies has kind of assist me in my scholarship. Was that what the sure, original like, question was? Yeah. Like, Sorry, like, like what, it. like what does it enable you to do, right? That, right. that yeah, maybe okay. your disciplinary perspectives might alone might not have. Okay. Well, I guess I, I would answer that in two parts because again, my route to Latino studies was very different than all of yours. And, um, in studying Latino populations, uh, I think the best part of the experience were the Latino scholars and colleagues that I met because we all gravitated to study that. And there was a political solidarity in political science. There wasn't a space for us. And so those of us who studied Latinos, most of us Latinos ourselves, you know, don't agonize, organize. And that's what I've always done. When I was in graduate school, I organized the students. When we were went to the American Political Science Association, we got into turf battles over a zero-sum game of, of graduate money for minority students. You know, if the African-Americans get it, then we want it too and that kind of thing. And so we organized a Latino caucus. So political power has always been part of my Latino studies identity. Now, when I moved to uh, the University of North Texas, there wasn't a Latino studies program. There wasn't critical mass of Latino scholars scholarship that was recognized. And what's wonderful is Daryl was part of the formation of UNITE, which was an interdisciplinary group of faculty. I mean, we hadn't been brought together in any kind of a formal way, but we felt the need for this recognition and the cultural affinity, political solidarity that came from it. So we organized again. We founded this group. And with Daryl, one of the things that we uh, were able to do was to organize uh, platicas to bring some visibility to our contributions. And so, Daryl, I think you organized the first series of platicas, I believe. And so we started making these presentations. And from the very beginning, and I think that was like eight years ago now, maybe ten Oh my Ten gosh. Years ago. How long have you been here? Well, I, I started at, at UNT in 2009. So yeah, it was 10, Ten years ago. <laughs> years ago, we started talking about we wanted a Latino studies program. We wanted a Latino studies major. 
We got the program three years ago. This fall, we got our major. So that's how long this has been. And, um, you know, and so the experiences, uh, this interdisciplinary program, I'm actually very new to, even though I'm the director of it. But it's just because I think I have the, uh, as a senior Latina, there aren't very many full professors on our campus. I don't know what it's like at yours. Uh, and th- the few that are have a lot of significant administrative responsibilities. So I was a professor with scholarship credentials, and they put me in charge of this group that I really don't know what I'm talking about. No, that's not true. I do, but it's through experience. It's through no formal training. It's because I have a loud mouth. Yeah. I like to think that it's, it's because you're such a strong leader for oh, everyone. Daryl, like, thank you. No, I mean, I, 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 yeah. Applause for for Val. I mean, that's like that. Yes, you were from the moment I met you, right? You were the one. Like you're making it. You're, you're kind of saying like, oh, all this stuff happens. Well, it happens in, in big part because you're helping get people together and make it happen, right? Yep. So yeah, that's we had what, to meet. We had yeah. to form relationships. We had to be strategic. Yeah. And, and yeah. And, and, and keep focused. Cause I mean, I, yeah, yeah. Well, we can talk more off, uh, off mic. I mean, I remember some people who wanted to like lay claim to some of that. Right. Um, right. but they weren't the ones doing the work. That's right. <laughs> I, I wanted to add that, that what we, what I think we all agree is that Latinx studies is, is, is inherently interdisciplinary. And the reason why today I can talk about art or media or urbanism or gentrification and everything else that I've written about is because I have been in conferences where I'm exposed to geographers, uh, leadership, literary, uh, art historians, and all of that, which is what Latinx studies is. And that's the problem with our disciplines. In our disciplines, we're only pushed to and fostered to think about our projects within anthropological or historical or disciplinary canons, which hinder our ability to form richer questions. When you do Latinx studies, you you have to break away from that. And that is inherently so enriching to anything you do because you are going to be forced to read. Like I remember, you know, reading uh, Frances Aparicio Tropicalizations, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Like like all of us read literary analysis through Frances Aparicio, right? Which is not something that you would do when you do your own disciplines. Um, I want to... Pivot the 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 conversation a little bit from a focus on on your scholarship and 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 kind of what Latina Latina Latinx studies means for for your scholarship uh, into thinking about teaching and and our students and our institutions right uh, and so this next question uh, the kind of first part is why is Latina Latino Latinx studies valuable to undergraduates. Uh, and why is it valuable to higher education institutions? Yeah, so um, I always tell my students when they take um, the kind of intro to Latino studies class with me at Oberlin College that, you know, trying to not sound um, too important, but that this is one of the most important classes that they'll take. And, And partly because I feel like there are ways that, you know, teaching Latino studies is we're 
try, we're giving students the tools to engage with the world around them in a, in a historicized way, in a way that um, is attentive to politics, in a way that is also thinking about cultural production, um, and that also, you know, thinks about, you know, the, the ways that Latinos both create different kinds of communities among themselves, but also their connection to the broader public. And so, um, you know, for a lot of students at Oberlin, um, this is their first time thinking about um, Latino communities and thinking about Latino communities outside of the geographic spaces they come from. So, for example, students in California are very familiar with, you know, Mexican-American, Chicano, and those from the Northeast know about Puerto Ricans. And it's only the kids from Chicago who know a little bit about both, right? <laughs> Which is about these histories of these places. And so I think it's, and so I think it's really important to kind of, um, you know, get them to disrupt what they think they know about Latino and Latinas. And then also I think for the Latino students themselves, it's one of the first places where they see something about themselves in a really complex and nuanced and exciting way. And so, um, for me, it's always the most exciting class to teach because there's always something new to teach. Um, and like Arlene said, you know, being in Latino studies means that I'm constantly putting myself in uncomfortable situations and teaching things that are totally outside of my field and outside of my methodological teaching. So this past fall, I taught um, Frederick um, um, Luis Aldama's Latinx Superheroes um, book about Latino comics. I know nothing about comics. I know very little about superheroes. And I tell my students this, and they they loved it, you know, and they love also being for a lot of them, comics and superheroes are something that are very it's very important to them. They grew up either reading them or consuming it in some way. And it just blew my mind, like what I learned from my students by offering them this book that might not necessarily be something they know about. They'd never really thought about Latinos within com- within comics, um, which is, has a long history, which Aldama um, documents beautifully, but they also bring their own expertise and they can ask different kinds of questions. And so for me, it's the most important class that I teach, um, both for myself as a scholar, but also I think for the students who are there and kind of what they bring and then what they leave with afterwards. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I was, I've thought a lot about this question because in, in the long process of getting our major approved in a conservative state with a board of trustees who are, are, are against these kind of identity, what they think are identity uh, degrees, we've had to defend it and explain it. And when we formed our our major, one of our selling points was is our students that get our degree are going to come out with competency with respect to art and culture, politics and policy, and the history and experiences of their national origin countries. This is a wonderful selling point for uh, Anglo students, given the growing Hispanic population in the United States, they need to know these things. If you go on Monster Inc. and you look at all the job descriptions now, they don't just say they want bilingual people. They want people with cultural competence in the Latino population. So we can sell it to our white students with that respect. The other thing, though, is for it's so important for Latino students. All the research suggests that when you have a Latino studies program, when you have Latino, uh, Latina Latinx professors, you have retention, and you have graduation. So, you know, how can anybody say that you shouldn't have a Latin, a Latino studies program when you've got that good information? Mm-hmm. 
I, I think you've nailed it, both of both of you. I will just say that we need these courses because these are central to a whole education. This is American mm-hmm. education. You cannot not have a full American education you know, in American academy without knowing about Latinx history. And sadly, as Gina said, a lot of that history is not taught in high school, is not taught in a part of the mainstream culture. So it's part of being wholly educated that, that is centrally. So this is not a course if for sure our Latinx and people, uh, students of color get a lot of benefit from seeing themselves represented in these classes. But these are classes that everybody needs to take. Mm-hmm. That's right. We're part of the mainstream. Absolutely. And that's the recognition that we need. One of the things in political science that we have struggled with, and I think we finally succeeded, was convincing the discipline that what we as Latino scholars are the subjects that we study are mainstream political science. Um, it was interesting, Daryl, in your introduction to the conference, and you mentioned the book Fraga et al., Fraga and Others. I'm one of those others. I was one of the authors on that book. And, you know, when the immigration protests began, well, Latino scholars didn't know how to explain it. And I can tell you for sure, non-Latino political scientists had no idea. And their models of what would have predicted political participation, they couldn't explain it. So we... We made contributions in mainstream political science in terms of be able to, how to understand, explain, and predict these new uh, groups who are participating. So, great. You know, uh, Gina, part of your answer about uh, to that question focused on. You know, I think you said something like uh, you're providing them the tools to engage in the world around them, right? And you emphasize that community connection a few times. And so I want to pivot again to that community, to the community connection. Because Latina, Latina, Latinx studies, right, has its roots in a strong connection between community and the scholarship that we're doing, right? Um, uh, someone that, that Arlene mentioned earlier, Jorge Rodriguez, who's a doctoral candidate now, um, when my book came out, uh, he started... Kind of like direct messaging me on Twitter. We got talking. <laughs> he he wrote one of the first reviews of the book, and um, uh, and you know, so ever since we first started talking uh, online, and this is over three years ago now, uh, he's always pushed me to consider this question, uh, and I'm quoting I'm quoting from a direct message um, in Twitter. <laughs> Can Tio understand this? Like this is like a guiding question for him. Can Tio, can Tia understand what it is that you're talking about? Um, and so for Jorge, this brings up uh, what he calls broader questions of what it means to be a scholar of color in the academy. Like how do we write for the academy and for Tio or Tia in a way that uh, both can understand? And of course, I think all of your talks, right, did a great job of making these community connections. And I'm wondering if you can take a moment to address explicitly what the research you're, you discussed in your talks and that you do on a regular basis contributes to both the academy and to our kinfolk and communities outside of scholarly spaces. Well, the the talk I gave this morning is very similar to one that I give to Latina high school students. 
I mean, seriously, most of those young women do not imagine themselves in the political sphere. So, yeah, I think that mine directly speaks to the community. Um, Getting a young Latina, Latinos involved in community responsibilities, civic engagement. So the kind of research that I do suggests, I hope, to them that, that they can enter this sphere and they can be both successful and that they can contribute and help their community. I, I take pride in writing without jargon forever, and um, partly because English was not my first language. So to me, um, this issue of language was an issue. And, uh, and I'm so happy that, I, that English was not my first language because that meant I had to be very humble with my writing. The first time I wrote in English was actually when I was in, in uh, university. So, and then I'm here, I am writing six books. What is that about? But, but I think the humbleness of realizing my, that, and I, and I see this a lot with academia, the, the pressure to like sound smart. And I, I see so many colleagues of mine that get paralyzed over a sentence because that sentence means so much and they have to have beautiful language and all of that. Because English was not my first language, I was free from that burden because I knew that I had to communicate. It was not about like pretending or being florid, whatever. Like I gave that up and it was so freeing. And I've, I always feel that people tell me, oh, you write so clearly. I don't know if I do, but I, I strive to communicate. And I think that that's been um, um, what I strive to do more. Um, and I teach that way and I encourage my students to, to think clearly, which oftentimes is the most difficult thing. Um, I also feel like many of us who are doing Latinx studies are writing about things that are very deeply personal or struggles that we're involved in or our communities. Um, I was writing about East Harlem because I care about the Puerto Rican community in East Harlem. Uh, nobody was writing about them. I was writing this, this, this Latinx art is about 20 years of like dealing with this, this artist and caring about these communities and Everything I like the shopping mall stuff came from uh, realizing the ways in which our communities are racialized because of their purchase, all of that. And I think that that's great, you know, and I know, I know your work and I know how personal it is to the immigration, your book on immigration, the book on, 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 on um, the military. Um, so I think that that's a fantastic entry point into writing things that are, in other words, at least for myself, I never, I never wrote because I wanted a tenure or another like BS, like to me, you know, like, it's like, wow, this has to be written because nobody else will write it. And that, that urgency that I think many scholars, my students, like I have to write this because it's so empowering. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a fantastic element of, of a lot of the Latino studies literature that I'm reading. I, I, I totally agree. And I think that, I don't know, I, I always feel like this is part of being an ethnographer is that also being in conversation with people, um, listening to people. You know, For me, that's the key about being a good ethnographer is really being a careful and thoughtful listener. That means that I, I can't think of a project that I have done or research that I have done that haven't, that hasn't come in response to something that someone told me is really important or troubling or that they worry about, whether it's, you know, looking at the Chicago public schools and seeing that, you know, over 10,000 students participate in some form of military program and, you know, feeling, 
you know, like maybe these are the only options I have and how that might change whether or not I decide to go to college mm-hmm. or whether or not I enlist in the military. I mean, I think those were the questions that animated that book. You know, the ideas around gentrification and like why it is that people move between Puerto Rico and Chicago or maintain relationships. It's not because as according, at least in the 1990s, some policy analysts said that, you know, because Puerto Ricans moved so much that that meant that they were poor. And in fact, you know, I think a lot of us, you know, demonstrate it was the opposite, that people, because of their economic dislocation, are constantly moving in order to kind of make ends meet, you know. And I think that came from talking to my stu- to, to people I worked with in the community. And in the work on sanctuary, I think, is the same, that, um, you know, I... I, I never thought I would really write another book, but I feel like it's, it's compelled and partly because it's, it's a way to document the struggles of particular communities. And I think that for a lot of the communities that we work with, their stories aren't told and, um, and it's, and it's hard. And, and I think there's something really empowering when you go to El Tio or La Tia or Doña Maria and you say, you know, I'd love to interview you mm-hmm. because I'm really interested in the work you do you know, cooking each Sunday at the church, you know, right. what does that mean to you? And she's like, oh no, you should talk to father. So and then, no, 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 I'm, I'm really interested in what you have to say. And so I think there's a way that helping to document those histories and be a part of those conversations and then disseminate that is something that is, is I think in that spirit of the establishment of Puerto Rican studies and Chicano studies and, you know, African-American studies, mm-hmm. for example. Um, I've got one more question and then we'll see if there's any, I think we might have time for one or two questions from the audience, although maybe not. Um, <laughs> uh, so my, my closing question is what message do you have for, uh, for the Latina, Latino, Latinx listener at a PWI, at a pr- predominantly white institution who doesn't feel like they belong? What's your message to that student at a place like Iowa? Don't agonize, organize. (laughs) Be a Boy Scout and be prepared. Expect to be the only one in the room and so be ready for it. Um, Don't go it alone. Find study groups. Find mentors, not one, but many, and a white Man can be a good mentor if you take the initiative and talk to them. Um, Those are the things that come to mind immediately to me. I I would add to that that, you know, to remind them they're here for a reason, that they've earned the right to be here, and they stand on the shoulders of a whole lot of people who made it possible for them to be here, and, and to never doubt that. I think the way that I know I doubted that many, many, many times, but I was fortunate to have mentors, um, you know, to remind me that I was there for a reason and to support me and to, you know, encourage me along the way. And so reaching out to those mentors and reminding myself that there is a reason to be here is something I would say to them as well. And, and there has to be either Latinx groups. I mean, those, those groups are so important in creating communities, find them. But I am also, um, I I love social media. I think you've gotten that sense. Um, And I think it's so important for people that are isolated to know that they're not crazy, that there's something called Black Twitter, Latinx Twitter, where they can get a sense of reality because they will hear perspectives and voices and critical voices that that echo what they're thinking and that can empower them and guide them to different conversations too. Great. 
Thank you so much for uh, for joining us at the conference, for, for the talks that you've given already, and for being part of this roundtable. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts uh, about the podcast, about this roundtable discussion. Um, on Twitter, we're at ImaginingLat for the podcast, uh, or you can shoot us an email at podcast at imaginingLatinidades.com. Uh, please share this podcast with friends and give us five stars at Apple Podcasts, <laughs> ideally. Uh, and review us at, on Apple Podcasts. It helps because, you know, when, 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 we, when you do that, eh, the algorithms and whatever, it helps, to, it helps to increase our visibility so that more people can hear the words of these great folks. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Please check, check the show notes uh, for uh, links and any citations and stuff that were mentioned here today. Uh, and that's it. So thanks for joining us. get to ask you any questions, Daryl. doesn't work that way. Hey! <laughs> you have a great radio What is voice. your story? What is your origin story? Yeah, what is what your... Is your we'll have you to watch listen, your podcast. You gotta listen to episode one. <laughs>